Hello and welcome to WRI's Big Ideas Into Action podcast. I'm Nicholas Walton and in this episode, where do we stand on climate action now that the dust has settled on Joe Biden's Leaders Summit? What caught the eye of our experts? I think the most noteworthy gap was on the finance side. We didn't see, other than the US, any major economies come forward with any commitments on finance. And what are they now looking for on the road to Glasgow? What are the others who haven't yet come forward with ambitious commitments? What are they going to do? I think that's the next thing that we're looking for. No nation can solve this crisis on our own, as I know you all fully understand. All of us, all of us, and particularly those of us who represent the world's largest economies, we have to step up. President Biden kicking off the leader summit in Washington, D.C. The summit was, in effect, an opportunity to accelerate the response to the climate crisis. But did it achieve what it set out to? Helen Mountford is our vice president for climate and economics. And David Waskow is the director of the International Climate Initiative at WRI. What do they now know that they did not before the summit happened? Helen first. Let me kick off there, uh, Nicholas, because I think we actually know quite a bit. This summit, one of the things it really needed to deliver was to be the first moment in this year where countries started to step up their climate ambition. It's not going to be the last moment. It's the first. There's going to be a number of subsequent leader summits discussing climate where more and more countries can, can come forward and step up ambition. But this one needed to be the first to kick off, and it really did. U.S. came forward with a strong um, enhanced target for 2030, having their emissions uh, reductions uh, by, by 2030. We also got uh, strong new commitments from Japan and Canada. Canada needs to go further, but it was a good first cut. And then we had some other commitments, sectoral commitments around phasing out coal or coal finance, some on enhancing uh, finance for forest protection and and halting deforestation. But certainly in terms of uh, the start of coming forward with stepping up ambition, this was uh, what we really achieved last week. This was a really important Kickstarter for this year and heading toward COP26 in Glasgow in November. And it gave us the kind of traction that we need. Um, the U.S. and D.C., I think, was key in that. It really, I, I think, in, in a lot of ways, w- went beyond what observers a few months ago or even a few weeks ago might have expected. And it really is both ambitious, it really pushes the envelope, and, and it's achievable. Um, there have been a half a dozen or so analyses in the last couple of months that have shown how one could get to that 50% or higher um, reduction. Th- th- those really show different pathways. They're not all identical, but it does show that you can get there when you take really assertive action in a number of sectors across the economy. So that includes the power sector, of course, as well as transport, which is now, in fact, the largest sector of emissions in the United States, as well as other sectors such as buildings, making sure that those are energy efficient, addressing issues with agriculture and land use, all of that. It's not going to be flipping a switch to get there, but it is something that can be done. And um, we have the means to do if we make the investments and if we put the effort into it. One critical component of that is going to be what Congress does with the uh, infrastructure plan that President Biden has proposed, uh, which really would devote trillions, literally, of dollars to the effort to tackle these issues across the economy. And it's also going to depend on states and cities and businesses doing what they need to do as well. I I would just add that in addition to the countries that um, Helen mentioned, that there are a couple more that 
did say some things that were promising, I think, at the summit. South Africa made clear that it's going to peak and start declining its emissions starting in 2025. And that's a decade earlier than they had previously said. And then China, we um, also heard from President Xi that they are going to start declining coal consumption there starting in 2025 in the 15th five-year plan. Some people think that that's not a huge step forward necessarily, that it's business as usual as it, as it would have been, but it, it does send an important political signal that China's going to begin moving in that direction of declining coal consumption. I, I was going to pick up on that political side. This almost was a, a question of political signaling and building momentum globally, uh, especially after the change in the White House, uh, rather than any of the actual details. Am I right in thinking that, Helen? I'd actually say it was both. Um, it was definitely an important moment of political signaling, both that the U.S. is back in the game and actually are able and and wanting to work with other countries collectively to step up ambition and action. So an important political signal there. But it also represented a real shift in terms of the trajectories that some of the major economies are on in terms of their climate trajectories. The U.S., um, as we said, uh, Japan, uh, Canada to a slightly lesser extent, but all of them were significantly increasing their commitments and what they would achieve in terms of emissions reductions by 2030. So there was some real action on the table, real commitments, the policies, the plans to back those up, um, as well as that political signaling. Uh, David, were there any gaps that you noticed? I, I think the most noteworthy gap was on the finance side. Um, we didn't see other than the US, any major economies come forward with any commitments on finance. It was important, though, that the US came back to the mix and put forward an international climate finance plan that puts the United States back in the game as a finance provider. The last four or so years have not been promising, to say the least, on that front. So um, this was an important step forward for the US to come forward saying that it was going to increase its climate finance. The degree to which it did so, however, was not what many had hoped for. Uh, the U.S. said that it would double its climate finance by 2024. That's in a context where a number of countries, particularly in Europe, have already doubled uh, their climate finance since Paris over the last four or five years. And so the United States is doing some catch up by saying it's going to get there by 2024 when some of those other countries are already planning to increase even further um, what they're doing on climate finance. So that is a gap. And I think we've heard fairly widely, both from vulnerable countries around the world that need that finance to be able to weather the climate impacts they're facing, as well as, frankly, from some of the other donor governments that uh, the United States does need to look at how it can do more on that front. I think, as David said, I mean, the big gap there is around the international climate finance. We actually saw um, vulnerable and developing countries the last couple of years were the ones that stepped up their own ambition on what they would do. They're the ones who are facing climate impacts face on. They're aware of the crisis. They know uh, things have to happen. So they've been the ones who've been the most ambitious. And now we really need the developed economies to come behind them and actually provide the finance that they had committed to do before to support both their low carbon transition and even more importantly, the adaptation and resilience building they need. And that just didn't happen. And so that's one of the major things we're looking at. Some of the next key leaders events, including the G7 summit in June in the UK, can they actually come forward then and actually make some of the commitments to stepping up finance that we need? 
I think the other thing that would be a gap, I'd say, is that some of the other major economies were largely silent or came forward with some indications which didn't say very much. And I'd put into that category Australia, who said they're on a net zero trajectory, but not until when? I mean, we can all be on net zero trajectories uh, forevermore. So so what's the, ta- what's the date? What's the target there? Um, I think in terms of Brazil, we did hear that they're going to shift their net zero target forward from 2060 to 2050. But our WI Brazil team has been very clear. Some of the promises that are being made there really conflict with the policies and actions we've seen from the government the last couple of years. So is that really going to happen? And how is that going to happen? We'll be watching closely. And then there were a number of others that were largely silent. Um, so, or, you know, didn't commit to anything, didn't say anything new. So there's quite a few other major economies we're looking to, what are they going to do next? We've had the European Union, we've had the UK step up. Now we've got some of the other major economies. What are the others who haven't yet come forward with ambitious commitments? What are they going to do? I think that's the next thing that we're looking for. Uh, are there any other things that you're looking for between now and, and Glasgow, David? One of the key questions going forward is what other countries that did not make commitments for their 2030 targets are planning to do. And so in that category, we have South Korea, which has indicated that it will come forward with a stronger target. They did do something important at the summit this past week, which was to say that they're going to end international financing for new coal projects. That was a step in the right direction, very clear step in the right direction. The question now is what they're going to do in terms of their 2030 target and also what they're going to do in terms of phasing out coal use in the country itself. And obviously that's linked to where they would go with 2030 targets. So that's going to, I think, very much be on the center of the radar over the coming weeks and couple of months, perhaps even in the next several weeks at the P4G summit, they have an opportunity to, to do something on that front. They're a country, just to note, that has a net zero commitment for 2050. So the question is, are they going to get their 2030 target aligned with that? Obviously, many eyes are also on on China. The U.S. and China agreed a statement, a joint statement, uh, several days ahead of the summit. And it showed that they are ready to engage with each other. The two countries, I think, recognize that as the two largest emitters in the world, as the two largest economies, that they can't simply step aside from this issue and and have to find ways to align their action. It sort of set things on an even keel, even in the midst of a stormy sea, in terms of the relations between the two countries as a whole. This, This really set some balance in terms of the climate relationship. But we have yet to see how that will play out, and um, it really will be critical for that to be concretized in in various ways, one of which is for China to adopt a 2030 target that is uh, stronger than the one it currently has. Uh, So to to, to conclude, it sounds as though there's a bit of tentative optimism uh, between both of you. I, I think so. I think this was a good start for what we needed. There is a lot more that is needed between now and Glasgow to deliver deliver both the um, climate ambition we need, but also the financing and the support. It's got to be a whole package that comes together. And we know even at Glasgow, it's probably not going to quite add up to enough. So part of the purpose of the negotiations there 
in November will really be about setting the terms going forward. How do we continue to ramp up ambition? How do we ensure accountability, transparency, the right rules of the game, so that on the international front, we can actually achieve the targets and the goals that are set forward um, over this period? So a lot more to be done, but this was a great way to kickstart the year. Yeah, I would agree with all that. And I, I think that one of the areas that will need attention, in addition to making sure that we keep pushing forward on reducing emissions and the ambition we see, is on the adaptation front and how to address impacts that countries are facing and are going to increasingly face. And um, when it comes to climate finance, that really is, um, as Helen was saying, is really um, at the heart of the issue that many of these vulnerable countries are saying that they are going to need more finance to be able to deal with the impacts that um, they're facing today and expect to see become even more severe. That is really, I think, the crux of, of some of what will need to be handled over, over the coming year. We obviously have to keep on the emissions reductions front and, and being as assertive as that as possible. We can't ignore the fact that these impacts are, are happening now and, and need to be addressed. And that was David Wasco ending this special post-Leader Summit edition of WRI's Big Ideas Into Action podcast. If you go to our website, wri.org, you'll find plenty more analysis of the summit, the commitments made, the political trajectory the world is now on, and what we're watching on the road to Glasgow and COP26. You'll also find plenty more podcasts on everything from energy resilience in India to communities fighting local pollution in Jamaica and Indonesia. You can also subscribe via any of your favourite podcast apps. I'm Nicholas Walton. Thanks for listening.